Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. And this morning, uh, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Carl Stefan Boutillet from Ghent University on a uh, very new, very recent publication, Hot of the Presses, Dialogue and Doxography in Indian Philosophy. Hello, Carl, and welcome to the program. Hi, Raj. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. So, why don't you tell us um, a little bit about maybe the, 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 the publication series that this is part of? I think that would be quite relevant. Yeah, well, uh, the book is published at Routledge in the series Dialogues in South Asian Traditions, Religion, Philosophy, Literature, and History. Uh, and actually, I feel that the topic of the book is quite appropriate for the series. And that was also the idea of the uh, one of the there is um, director. I'm pretty happy about it because uh, it's. I feel it's a series that has published quite a number of great titles. So I'm very uh, humbled uh, to be part of it. Actually, I felt sort of the same way. I had the good fortune of publishing with um, Rutledge um, both books now. The other one's out this week. Maybe at some point I'll do a flip interview on that one. But it's it is humbling. It's 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 quite. Uh, it's um, quite a respected publisher. And so um, your book is part of a series on dialogue. Um, you know, before we even get into the book, you know, there may be um, uh, readers, listeners out there who, however educated, may be slightly stumped by the word doxography. And they may need to go look up doxography. <laughs> so how about you tell us what doxography is and perhaps how it applies to, to your research and, 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 and how it informs your research and perhaps even how, how your research informs the use of that term. Yeah, well, that's a good idea uh, to begin with. That Obviously, doxography is not uh, a common word. We're more, more used to the term perhaps biography, right? Perhaps we can relate to uh, the two terms, like a biography is normally somehow of a a retelling of a bios, right? The telling of a life, a life story. Um, whereas a doxography is, um, let's say, a, a text or a content of a text which focuses on doxa, so on opinion, uh, views, especially in the Indian context. It's uh, what we call doxographies are somehow compilations of views or uh parts of texts or full text again that uh, discuss uh, what the Sanskrit term uh, darshana mainly covers, right? So, I mean, there are other terms with a similar semantic, but uh, often actually doxographies in the Indian context have darshana in the title. Um, now, what exactly is a doxography? That's part of the job here in the book to elucidate that. Um, the term itself, doxography, was coined um, by uh, Diels, Alexander, uh, Hermann Alexander Diels, if I remember properly, 
German classicist. Uh, so the term uh, was coined to um, uh, denote, I would say, uh, mainly, the, I mean, text or parts of text uh, found quite profusely in uh, the Greco-Roman world, although there are doxographies that are Islamic and Christian. Uh, so mainly when we say if we identify a single text as a doxography, it would be uh, texts in which you will find uh, a list of different views. Um, but then they have so many different kinds of doxographies and it's kind of part of the debate now in the field. Uh, shall we use a narrow view on doxography or shall we use a broader view? Uh, Andrew Nicholson, I think, did a very good job already in discussing doxography. He opted for adopting a narrow view. So he would say text that discuss views without too much argument. So it's kind of, it's kind of a mere listing of views. Uh, and I think that was perhaps useful for his own work, but I, I have adopted a broader definition of doxography. So uh, I have given in the book quite a, a formal definition of what I, yeah, what I uh, understand by doxography, but perhaps we need not here to get into those formalities. But let's say that it's either a whole text or a part of a text where competing views of philosophers or different schools are presented, right, uh, following a certain division of topics and so forth. Um, now, these texts have uh, often been uh, viewed rather negatively in the Indian context. They have been blamed of being inaccurate very often or, yeah, uh, they have also been used, I find, in a more historiographical uh, manner. So the scholars use these texts sometimes to date um, some philosophical contents and so forth uh, to try to say, well, okay, if that text comes from that period and talks about this particular view, then we might yeah, uh, deduce that uh that view was in vogue at that time and so forth. Uh, and although this is something that we can do, obviously, with doxography, I tried to do something else and I view them uh, in a rather different manner. For me, these texts were not meant to be uh, historiographical, but they are dialectical and have uh, a rhetorical, let's say, uh, often, I mean, a rhetorical approach. And, uh, well, they all have a structure of their own and so forth. And this leads me uh, to uh, see these texts as perhaps practical texts, as uh, having what I call a spiritual dimension. So they can be seen as spiritual exercises. And this is, I believe, a quite a new approach uh, to such literature. So... Tell us specifically which literature, which texts, which views. Maybe you can talk about the organization of the book a little bit while you answer yeah. that. Well, uh, so for that book, uh, when it started, I thought I could uh, work on five different texts. But then uh, this would have made a very big, <laughs> very big book and a lot of research. And what I decided is to focus on three different texts coming out of three different 
uh, sectarian context. Um, so I've used, uh, I mean, the first text that I used to, and let's say to, to launch the book, right? It's the sixth uh, century text from Bhavi Veka, a Buddhist Majamika philosopher. The text is the Majamika Hridaya Karika, so the, uh, the heart of the, the heart of the middle way. Um, then the second text is actually uh, quite well known. This time is a Jain text of the about eighth century, the Shaddashana Samuchaya from Haribhadra Suri. And the third text is perhaps more problematic uh, because of its authorship, which is um, yeah, it's not obvious to figure it out. Uh, the second, the third text, sorry, uh, is the Sarva Siddhanta Sangraha, attributed uh, to Shankara. And the datation of that text is also not obvious. So uh, let's say that uh, the Vedan, the Advaita tradition tries to say it's from Shankara. So then we could say, well, it's from the time of Shankara, but it, it's most likely a text uh, from minimum of perhaps 10th, 11th century and perhaps as late as 14th century. So this is uh, still a contentious topic. Um, so these are the three texts that I work on, but um, you know, I could not work on this, these old texts uh, altogether because the, the MHK, for example, the Majamika Hridaya Karika is, is enormous. So I had to focus uh, on chapters. And I, what I did is I selected one chapter of each text. So I took uh, each chapter on the Mimamsa view. Uh, and that, I believe, gave some coherence to the book as well. And there are several reasons why I, I uh, selected that chapter of each of the texts. Um, one of them, perhaps, which I, uh, I found very compelling, is that since I am trying to show that these texts have, uh, let's say, a uh, practical dimension, right, that these texts can be seen as spiritual exercises. I'm, I'm locating these, uh, say, these exercises within, uh, I would say, a philosophical yoga or in more, say, Sanskrit term, I try to show or to uh, locate these texts as a practice that is meaningful in the context of jnana yoga, right, the yoga of knowledge. And uh, so when I choose the Mimamsa chapter. Here's interesting because Mimamsa is often associated with, let's say, the Karma Yoga or the or whatever path, not Karma Yoga, but to Karma, to uh, to the performance of sacrifices. Uh, and there is a kind of opposition often between uh, these uh, the promoters of yeah, the path of knowledge and the path of action. Uh, so I try in the book as well to uh, illustrate that uh, uh, opposition somehow. And so in each of the chapter, I come back a bit and see where this path of knowledge and how it is promoted and how it makes sense. Uh, so I would say that either of, each of these three authors could define their approach or at least their philosophical approach uh, as a form of jnana yoga. So that's about it uh, in terms of uh, what texts I engage with, uh, primarily because obviously I, 
I have to discuss a bunch of other texts on the side, but these these three are the main focus. Could you tell us a little bit about how you engage the texts? Right. Uh, well, that's... Uh, <laughs> The book in itself, I think, should be somehow uh, visualized uh, as a plant somehow, right? It grows and uh, so the tree main, so the, the, the stem, let's say, right, has three components and out of the tree uh, comes different branches. So depending on each text, there are some uh, uh, that, some different elements of focus in the chapter. But uh, first, I try to locate each of the texts in uh, in their sectarian context. So I will talk about La, uh, Majamica, for example, and uh, well, the author by Viveka. You know, uh, what is his Majamica approach, and how is doxography meaningful in that uh, sectarian context? That's become quite important. Uh, to read the text. And I do the same for each of the texts. So I try for the Shaddashana Samuchaya to locate this doxography uh, within the, um, let's say, the sectarian environment of Jainism. And I try to here uh, elucidate, you know, what's the need here of, of a doxography? How can it contribute and how can doxography be a spiritual exercise yeah, in the context of Jainism. And then I do the same with uh, Advaita. So that's, I'd say, uh, a main branch. Uh, I also try to read, uh, in the context, I try to read the text not only as spiritual exercise, which would kind of perhaps uh, essentialize, you know, these texts as being merely spiritual, but I want to uh, also uh, somehow relate the text to the uh, political, let's say, environment, so the socio-historical context, which uh, um, somehow influence, yeah, and uh, influence the development of doxography, uh, especially in the MHK chapter, so the chapter on uh, Babi Veka's uh, doxography, I give a longer, perhaps, historiographical context in uh, trying to elucidate uh, the development of uh, apologetics and of debate and competition between different schools. How did that come to be? Yeah, especially focusing, let's say, from the 5th, 6th century onwards, where we see new development in heuristic uh, and so forth. So that's another main uh, component that I somehow discussed in each chapter. And then perhaps a third of the main components, which is related yeah, to the nature of the content of those doxographies. So these doxographies, as I explained before, they list views. And so I try to um, reflect on what are views and why are views uh, important uh, yeah, for philosophy, obviously, but why are people who are uh, engaged on a religious path, let's say in Buddhism or in Advaita or in Jainism, why is it meaningful for them to engage with views and what are, you know, why do they have not only to learn their own views, but why do they pay attention to the views of others? And this somehow leads me to uh, discussion of 
uh, let's say, this principle of the conventional views against uh, ultimate views. And I somehow suggest that you know, all the views listed in doxographies are always to be taken as conventional views. And it is through this kind of uh, a dialectic of engaging with competing conventional views that the doxographies are trying to direct the practitioner, let's say here the philosopher or the thinker, the public, yeah, the reader of that text, so these texts are trying to engage the uh, practitioner towards the ultimate view, right? And it's in that sense that I suggest that these texts can be seen as spiritual exercise. So they make use of conventional views, to repeat, in order to establish somehow an ultimate view. So that would be three uh, kind of theoretical uh, components that come back in each section. But then, yeah, each uh, section has more, I would say, little leaves and flowers and branches touching on other topics. Uh, for example, one uh, which I try uh, with uh, Bobby Baker's text, uh, by the end of the chapter, I discuss irony and humor in uh, Bobby Baker. And this is a topic which I uh, felt was really seldom discussed by um philosophers, people who uh, study Indian philosophy, perhaps because we tend to be too serious, I don't know why, but whereas we find a lot of discussion, for example, in classical studies with Socrates and so forth, uh, on irony and, you know, the, the function of irony and humor and philosophy, there's very little about it in uh, Indian philosophy. And in Bariveka, at the end, I kind of touch upon it because I actually see a lot of irony in Bariveka's work. And I wanted to uh, illustrate that a little bit and reflect on its function, perhaps. And why do we see that here? Yeah. So why would you say, <clears throat> I think I agree with you in terms of the general trend, but why would you say that um, it's, it's sort of... Um, uh, against the trend to to note irony and humor in these works, like what would you say is at play in terms of trends in scholarship that you are um, sort of shifting with with your uh, ironical read? Well, uh, well, I, I don't know here if I'm like a shifting a trend or well, I, I when I discovered irony in Barry Baker's work, then I started to look around. So, is there people theorizing irony in Indian philosophy? And I found practically nothing. Uh, so, I would say one of the reasons why I'm saying this is, is because I've been looking for people who actually engage with uh, this uh, this topic, and there is not much on it. But then if we reflect on why is that so, um, well, that's a, actually a pretty good question. I guess we, that should be um, a, a discussion on its own, perhaps because a lot of the approach, you know, perhaps we could take that uh, line of inquiry. A lot of the approach uh, that are taken uh, are uh, philological, philologically oriented, right? So they, you know, kind of break the text in pieces and focus on small elements here and there, or again, or again sorry, if it's, uh, let's say, a philosopher, not a philologist who's engaging with text, often the philosophers themselves, they, they focus on, let's say, uh, a topic, yeah, the self or, uh, you know, uh, epistemology and so forth. 
which kind of breaks the text apart again and then tries to kind of isolate yeah, the topic and go into the logical technicalities of that topic. Whereas I think to see humor, we have to take the text more as a, as a whole, as units. And then we see perhaps like patterns here uh, more uh, clearly when the text is not just broken down. And when we see that text is meant to, to talk to people, uh, is meant to not only seduce people with rational argument, but as well um, with... Um, uh, let's say more uh, psychological, um, yeah, methods, yeah, rhetoric and so forth. So I don't know. Yeah, these are just suggestions. Um, but what I know for sure is that the idea uh, of uh, irony and humor in Indian philosophy hasn't been uh, much explored so far. And I am only sketching, yeah, an attempt in the book because that's not the main focus. But uh, yeah. Well, part of the reason I, I sort of uh, uh, take us to this footnote uh, <laughs> of the main purpose of your project to talk about um, parts of the text that perhaps may have been overlooked in previous scholarship is because, you know, I suspected that it for the very same reasons why the texts that I look at haven't been um, read the way I read them, I suspected the same to be true of your texts. I mean, we're both textualists. Um, I look at narrative texts, epics, Puranas, um, and you look at philosophical texts. Uh, but the, the, one, uh, the one key methodological uh, 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 inclination, innovation for me is finding a way to look at the text as a whole mm-hmm. um, before slicing and dicing, because you can often yield a fair bit by the slicing and dicing. But the first step is to look at the text as a whole. And I just suspected it might be similar with your subfield. So I thought I'd just drill down and see if it was the case. So it's interesting that you have the same supposition. Um, now, more to the more to the heart of your project. There are a couple of terms that you use that I think would be useful to drill down on further. Um, when you talk about the... Um, First, say something about uh, the distinction between the conventional view and the ultimate view that you see, the interplay between the two that you see in the doxographies. Um, and secondly, um, could you please unpack what you mean by spiritual exercise in this context? Sure. Uh, all right. So, uh, well, perhaps let's uh, begin backwards. I think it would be perhaps easier yeah, with the spiritual exercise, what I mean there. Um, I take that term, uh, and I think it is well known now, uh, from Pierre Adot, right, who was a classicist and work on yeah, different uh, Greco-Roman um, philosophers. Uh, his approach to philosophy tried to somehow uh, break away from a previous approach, uh, which were a bit like we said, right, breaking down the text and seeing the text as uh, merely kind of uh, perhaps intellectual yeah, formation and then looking for systems and so forth. And try to say, well, the people who are doing, uh, who are writing these texts, they are involved in, in, in a practice, uh, a certain practice of philosophy which defines their lifestyle. And the texts that are spiritual exercise are meaningful uh, in the sense that they contribute to this lifestyle. 
Uh, more especially, uh, what is quite meaningful to me, uh, spiritual exercises are meant to somehow bring about a change, a shift in perspective. They are meant to uh, transform views, to inform views as well, but mainly to transform them. And ultimately, by transforming views, right, it is thought that we can transform uh, the practitioner in that sense here, the, the philosopher. Right, so when I uh, talk of doxographies as spiritual exercise, then I want to denote that they are meant to uh, not only to inform, yeah, but to transform the views. So in that sense, they are never neutral, right? They, it is, uh, in sense, they're not just giving some information about views and that's it. Uh, and that is perhaps uh, a way that they have been misread, uh, something I suggest in the book. But in the past, yeah, people often blame doxographies and doxographers for being inaccurate, uh, for wrongly depicting views and so forth. So in that sense, they, uh, they would, they would, uh, the critique would say that, well, these doxographies, they are not informing us properly. And that might be the case because, I mean, in, in, there are a lot of different problems in the information that doxographies provide. But if we see these texts as not seeking merely to inform, but to transform, then we can start to see that perhaps where there is misinformation, there might be uh, some rhetorical strategy at play here. There might be a reason why there is uh, misinformation. And in that sense, it's not that the doxographer is only, uh, which is possible, but it's not that he, he is only not uh, well informed, but it is perhaps because he has another project and then he uses his approach to views yeah, in a certain way to inflect yeah, perhaps uh, the meaning of some, you know, some ideas in order to uh, direct the reader towards a better idea. Yeah, in the end, I think that I suggest that each doxography suggests uh, a best view. Yeah, and ultimately, now that will lead us to the second to topic, but ultimately they suggest uh, or they try to lead the uh, the practitioner in that case here or in the, uh, the philosopher, they, they try to lead him or her to the uh, ultimate view. But what do I mean by uh, conventional and ultimate? Now, this is a, say, a common trope, let's say, in uh, Indian philosophies, especially those uh, who uh, seem to adopt what I call the jnana marga, the jnana yoga, yeah, the, the path of knowledge. It is a topic that we find in Buddhism, but equally uh, in Jainism and in Advaita. That is why, actually, uh, I, I use that as well because I see it there and it makes sense. So what is a conventional view? I would say this is uh, every view, right? Every view that is conceptual, every view that is using words, uh, every view that is um, laid down uh, on, on paper and text or uh, something that can be uh, understood yeah, by different uh, means of reasoning, different pramanas. All of these views, yeah, would be said to be conventional, uh, and that is, uh, uh, as I say, in the tree system that I listed. Yeah, they they uh, talk about views, 
and they talk about that other, let's say, that ultimate perspective, that ultimate view for the Buddhists, that would be uh, shun, shunyata, for example, right? The, the, uh, the ultimate perspective, which is not a view itself, right? They would say that ultimate view is a non-view. Um, in Jainism, you had Kunda Kunda talking about uh, the, the, the distinction between the, the two views, the, the uh, let's say, conventional and the ultimate. For him, the ultimate is actually the perspective of the soul itself, um, which is somehow non-conceptual, non-verbal. And similarly, in Advaita, you have Shankara using this para-aparavidya, uh, this, uh, yeah, uh, non-ultimate, yeah, ultimate uh, knowledge. And for him too, let's say the ultimate is Brahman, right? So the ultimate is the perspective of Brahman. But then comes the problem is that how do we establish, how do we get there? How do we establish the uh, the ultimate? How do we get to the ultimate perspective when all the means that we have are conventional? And this is where I see actually the meaningfulness of, of doxography for one thing, but also of philosophy, right? So the question of how to establish the uh, ultimate view brings the question of how to use views, the conventions, how to use philosophy, which, yeah, in its uh, say rational, conceptual dimension is always conventional. So how do we use the conventional to get to the non-conventional? How does that work? And there, uh, in each system, in each sectarian context, you have different strat strategies that are laid out for that purpose. And I argue that we can see these strategies, these strategies, sorry, is at play already within uh, doxographies, at least within the doxographies that I have reviewed. Well, it, it seems clear to me, just to comment on your, your earlier uh, point, it seems clear to me that these texts certainly have something to sell uh, in the ancient Indian marketplace of ideas and that they're engaged in selling what it is they're trying to sell. Mm -hmm. um, and to do so, they're going to um, upplay or downplay other traditions. You know, they're not, no less so than when you turn on the television in the modern day and look at um, a, a news channel, right? Yes. The Although they are, uh, purportedly reporting facts. Certainly, it's 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 far from only that. There's going to be a spin. There's going to be a um, there's going to be a, a perspective, a viewpoint that is being sold, uh, a lens through which the facts are emphasized or de-emphasized, and it just seems intuitively to me intuitive to me that certainly that would be the case for these ancient Indian texts as well. So I'm, I'm um, surprised to hear that they were um, maybe dismissed as inaccurate representations uh, in, in earlier uh, stages of scholarship. Yes, uh, well, that is likely due to uh, the fact that people who actually looked at doxography looked at it for some, uh, they looked at, those doxography for their content, uh, contents, sorry, more than the, for the text as a whole, right? And so they will look at, they will kind of break the text apart and say, well, this idea doesn't fit in that context here, or this is not, or something is missing, and so forth. And so the uh, the 
the tax were not considered, I think, as a full unit. Yet to come back to what you said, the uh, thing, um, say that each system or each doxographer has something to sell. I think the analogy here with marketing is is more than a metaphor. I think really somehow these doxographies have a marketing strategy. And I am I'm inclined here to tell you um, a story that, um, that came to me once I was in Dublin and I was visiting the Jameson uh, whiskey distillery uh, with my wife. It was yeah, after Christmas, we were visiting around and they gave us a tour of that distillery. And at the end, they gave us a, uh, a degustation, right? A tasting of of different whiskies and i thought it was very interesting how they had set up that tasting because it, it immediately reminded me of one type of doxography that i was dealing with in my work as what they did is that uh, they gave us three different whiskies and there was one that was a jameson but there was also the whiskies of two competitors so there was one it was a red label they started by giving us a red label whiskey then a Jameson whiskey, and then they gave us um, a uh, Jack Daniels, yeah, if I remember properly. And they gave us, uh, with every whiskey, a little bit of information, which was very systematic. It would be uh, where it comes from, how it's made, and its price. And then you would see, actually, that the two first ones, let's say the Red Label and the Jamesons, are rather similar in taste, but the Red Label is actually more expensive whereas jameson is more affordable and then you would move on to the uh to the jack daniels and then you would see that it is quite cheap but it also doesn't taste very good at least you know in the in the context here of the people so you see that they were systematically using their competitors to uh, illustrate you know to kind of uh sell their own product and I thought that's very fascinating. That is here doxography used for um, whiskey marketing. And this idea of putting, let's say, the Jameson in the middle recalled to me, actually, the strategy at play in the Jaina uh, doxography uh, that I am evaluating in the book. That I'm analyzing the Shaddarshana Samuchaya, which I, I argue there that what Hari Badra is doing is he is putting his system in the middle in between, you know, different competitors. And there are clear signs that he is suggesting that his is the best. Yeah. Anyway, so I find the might. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if, if I wasn't muted just now, you would hear me laugh out loud. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> it's uh, uh it's a great story, and I think it's 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 sort of a, an intoxicating metaphor, pun intended, um, for this. So I had the good fortune uh, for a semester of teaching um, at Ryerson University. It's um, it's a very very urban university in, in in an extremely diverse city of Toronto, and I taught world religions. And at the outset of the class, I said, you know, we are going to look at the world's religions in the marketplace of ideas. What are they selling you? What is it going to cost you? What is their value proposition? Is it worth it to you to invest in them? And then they, <laughs> um, and they really resonated with that with that approach. Um, so it's 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 it just makes me laugh thinking of some of the conversations I had <laughs> in that class. But that, but that's a great example, and 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 it's a great marketing strategy actually. Um, 
I've never taken a business course in my life, but in 2015, I started entrepreneuring so I could teach and stay in Toronto and teach online, teach in person and, and do one-on-one coaching. And so I've learned a thing or two over the years. And apparently <laughs> when someone makes you three offers uh, 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 in a sales context, it's the middle one they want you to take. <laughs> so they'll give, you one, they'll give you one that's like, you know, you know, if you want to, co- you know, I don't usually use these strategies because generally um, people find me through word of mouth. Yeah. You know, a friend or colleague will have a great experience and then they'll, they'll, they'll decide to refer me. But, you know, I'll say, you know, you can coach for me for like for like one session and it'll cost you this. <laughs> or you can coach with me for like a month and it'll cost you this. Or you can coach with me for a year and it'll cost you this. And really, it's the month I'm trying to sell you. <laughs> it's the middle one. right? Yeah, yeah um, I get it. <laughs> I, I find that fascinating. So tell us about you told us. Uh, tell us about some of the 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 uh unique uh differences among the other two case studies you looked at yeah tell us about how these are quite different as well all right so actually uh so the the book itself starts with the mhk i said right so the the bavivekas text is majamika text uh, majamika ridayakarika and then the second is Shaddashana Samuchaya, and the third is Sarva Siddhanta Sangra. And there's also a reason why I chose this kind of progression, because actually it's uh, the dialectical strategies at play here, the teleology of the text. By teleology, I mean the order of presentation of views. Um, it's kind of coherent. So uh, if we look at the MHK, what I'm uh, suggesting here when we take the text as a whole is that uh, Bhaviveka starts uh, by presenting uh, views that are Buddhist. Well, first of all, he uh, the first three chapters, especially the third one, uh, kind of make a unit. But the third one here uh, presents different categories of Abhidharma Buddhism. And Bhaviveka somehow uh, presents and criticizes this category to show his own perspective, which is, the no view of Majamika, right? Majamika tries to kind of uh, uh, grind to pieces normally every kind of view to show that they don't have uh, inherent nature, that nothing has fabava. So in order to establish this kind of non-view, the view of the void, if you want, uh, Bhaviveka here um, presents different uh, yeah, topics of Abhidharma, and that somehow uh, shows his own position without naming it, right? Without saying this is me or something like this, right? So there's no like chapter that says Majamika view. No, it doesn't work like this. You have these kind of first three uh, chapters that establish, let's say, uh, the perspective of Bhaviveka by emptying out the categories of Abhidharma. And after that, you have two more schools of Buddhism. Uh, and afterwards, you will have the different, uh, say, uh, Hindu school, like Samkhya and so forth. And the last one, it's uh, the one I was working on, the Mimamsa. And here I suggest that the strategy, actually, is that the the further you away you stand from the say the initial position, so the further away you are from the first three chapter, the further you are from truth. So it's kind of a descent into absurdity. That's these are words I use in the book. So that is the kind of uh, method, the dialectic and the teleology of uh, the MHK. I suggest it's kind of a 
descent into a doctrinal absurdity. And here, Babiveka is a bit like the philosopher in Plato's cave. He kind of, uh, you know, go back in the cave and takes you wherever you are, you know, in, in the darkness and tries to lip you, lift you back up, you know, to light, let's say, by destroying the arguments of each of these, uh, each of the presented system. Right. So if you understand me that here, the dialectic is kind of a descent into absurdity. Then the second text, the Jaina text, you have, um, well, this has been uh, discussed by uh, quite uh, many uh, scholars. And interestingly, most scholars have tended to say that there is no strategy in uh, the Darshana Samuchaya, that is just a random display of view. And that is supposedly because of the Anekanta Vada principle of Jainism. So he just sees all these views more or less as you know equal and he randomly presents them. But that's actually not the fact. They are, I mean, it's called this in a compendium of six views, but in fact there are seven. And the fourth one is the Jaina one, which makes three views before and three views after. And also the views of, uh, of uh, Haribada, the, the view of Jainism, is the only one that is uh, presented with a kind of praise, you know, praise of the Jina and so forth. So it's clear that that is the best view. Uh, now I have a series of other arguments that I believe will be criticized and rightly so. I have different means to suggest that. But uh, in any case, I say that uh, I see the the strategy at play here in Haribhadra's text is to uh, present his view as the center of world philosophy, kind of Mount Meru yeah, of uh, philosophical position. It is the central station. And to, have, to occupy that central position uh, in Jainism is not random, I suggest. It is actually desirable. It's the best position one can have. In order to prove that, then, as I say, I have different, um, yeah, different uh, arguments. But so here, the uh, idea is kind of an idea of equanimity. Each views are, let's say, equal, yeah, from the from a conventional perspective. But Samyak Darshana, the best view is only the view of the jina, and one should somehow get that point and by adopting the view of the jina then one can adopt i mean can somehow uh, get to the ultimate perspective which is beyond views altogether so to repeat the mhk of Viveka, it's the best view is at the beginning in haribhadra the best view is in the middle and then with the third shankara or the, the sarva siddhanta sangraha the best view the view of the advaita stands at the end Right, so here you we have a progression where uh, each view somehow is kind of neg each first view is negated by the second, and slowly we progress from the gross to the subtle. Now this is interesting as well because the people who have talked about uh, such a schematic in the um, the uh, in the Advaita. I've sometimes compared uh, this method with, I think that was here, Andrew Nicholson, who compared that method you know, to the dialectic in, uh, I think he said, Hegel, if I remember, or yeah, in any case, uh, 
Whereas actually what I'm trying to highlight here is that that strategy, this idea of going from the growth to the subtle, where uh, each new view kind of enlarge the perspective of the previous one, is actually a pedagogic strategy that we find already in the teachings of Shankara when he comments on different Upanishads and so forth. So that was noted yeah, by uh, uh, different uh, Jacqueline Hirst, for example, a different scholars. So this uh, pedagogic strategy is really in tune with uh, the, let's say, the teaching of the Advaita, with the pedagogy of the Advaita. So it's somehow natural to see it repeated within the uh, Sarva Siddhanta Sangraha. So if you heard me well, uh, I would say that each of these strategies, yeah, of each of these texts reflect actually the uh, pedagogy or the propedeutic of the different system that built these uh, views, that built these doxographies. Um, so, and I think that is uh, perhaps a, a surprise, you know, if we're, you know, it's interesting when we see it at first, but it is actually uh, most probable. It's uh, coherent uh, somehow. Uh, and also it suggests that there are no doxographies, or at least these three doxographies are not neutral. Doxographies are always a form of marketing, if you want to take that metaphor. Well, the, the observation that you make regarding the structure of the text, um, I think it's, 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 it's profound that these texts are organized in these ways. Uh, I, you know, I study very different texts. Um, nevertheless, um, my entire thesis actually was based on what I could learn about the David Mahatmya based on its structure first, looking at the first thing and the last thing and the middle thing. That's just a, uh, a methodological strategy that I had so internalized. Uh, it took me quite some time to actually put it into words and connect it with uh, Mary Douglas's work on ring composition, mm. sort of. Um, pervasive um, uh, um, compositional strategy, probably preliterate. We don't know where um, it's there and back again, right? It's, it's, it, 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 the, the, the first connects with the last, the middle is more important, right? So um, uh, I won't say too much about that at this point, but, but this is the, the, it is clear to me that there is a profound interplay between content and form in uh, ancient Indian, particularly Sanskrit texts. Yes, I even. Yeah. Go ahead, Zoe. No, it's fine. They're, they're orchestrated in such a way so as to guide exegesis or at least uh, aim to do so by their very structure. Um, and I think it's, and, 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 and I think we should look at the text as a meaningful whole first, regardless, but I think especially given how uh, the profound interplay between, between content and form with these texts, we do a, a great disservice um, to, to, to our search for knowledge through these texts when we, um, when we dismiss the, that orchestration, um, 
and then proceed to to look at bits and pieces of the texts. Yeah, indeed. Actually, that's this. Uh, I was even tempted to say that when it, it comes at least to doxography, uh, the let's say uh, the take that uh, um, uh, saying from uh, what oh no, his name escapes me. That famous Canadian theorician of communication, uh, where it says that the medium is the the message right that's that's a McLuhan I think exactly so I think in doxography the medium is the message more than the particulars although the particulars are interesting it's really the medium here that it, like somehow informs uh, like say the play how how things are, are are to happen but more than a formal characteristic I think we can also reflect back on these patterns with each within each sectarian context to somehow gain an insight on how they perceive their position in the world, how they interacted with others. And this is where perhaps there is more, um, let's say, a notion here of dialogue and so forth. So how did they use others somehow to, to uh, portray themselves? How did they relate with otherness? But also how did they perceive themselves? Right, and it is especially uh, clear in the case of the Advaita text when you have a group of people who put themselves really at the top uh, of the ladder. Somehow, uh, you know, you have here a, a very strong claim that might reverberate beyond yeah, the spiritual world to impact the political world as well. Yet, to be fair, uh, each uh, each of these authors and each of these systems perceive themselves as the best but they will express it differently. And these nuances have um, uh, consequences, as I said, yeah, beyond the mere uh, philosophical world. Uh, there is here, I would like to explore that more. I try in the book to, uh, let's say, reflect on that a little bit, but uh, there seems to be a, a, a whole set of coherences here. Between, let's say, the sacred and the profane, the, the spiritual and the political. And so um, maybe this is a good point to ask what, what next, what more? How would you like to continue this research? All right. Uh, well, that's... Uh, <laughs> There's, there's just so many ways, right? One could uh, continue. So I could go on uh, looking at other doxographies, and you know, that's something I suggest in the, in the uh, conclusion, right? That people perhaps should do further research and seeing different types of strategies that exist. Now I've outlined three, but perhaps there is more, or perhaps within a same sectarian environment, for, for example, within Jainism. Perhaps there are different strategies that are used by doxographers and what does that tell us and so forth. So these are ways that one can go. However, for now, I, I decided to not engage with that immediately because I wanted to uh, somehow have a bit of fresh air and touch upon new material. But I continue uh, somehow with the idea of lists. So... Um, doxographies are a list of lists, all right? So you have a list of views, a list of darshanas, or a list of yeah, um, philosophical systems, which are presented as list of topics, for example, the, uh, for example, list of darshanas and list of whatnot that constitute um, somehow these views. And the whole idea of lists and making lists uh, captured my attention. And I, I wanted to go 
back in time rather than to move forward and try to find other doxographies when there are plenty of other ones, but rather than go on further in time and examining uh, further doxographies, I wanted to go back in time at the idea of making lists itself. So what is the relation of these doctrinal lists to philosophies? What is the relation of learning all these doctrinal content, uh, the relation of that to one spiritual, let's say, uh, path, one spiritual journey. So I started to reflect on the uh, list making itself as a, let's say, a spiritual exercise, as a contemplative pra practice. And this can be very broad for those who read in, in Indian philosophy will know that almost every text is a list of lists and there are just an endless amount of lists. So one could, you know, approach this topic in so many ways. Um, and this is what I'm doing at Ghent. That is uh, the project for which I'm funded by the FWO. Uh, as of right now, I am using lists as a, as a way to reflect on rituals. And I am prone to see lists actually as a ritualization of knowledge. And I want to theorize, let's say, a passage from, I'd say, uh, a time where uh, ritual was quite dominant in the, uh, uh, say, social-religious sphere of India, um, to a time where we have now, let's say, systematic philosophies of what we exactly call darshanas, right? And I want to look at this kind of passage from, let's say, more ritual life to a more speculative life through the topic of list and... Um, I mean, now it perhaps seems quite up in the air and that's something else in the book, so I don't want to uh, you know, uh, engage too long on that. Uh, but I, there's a lot of what one can do. I even, uh, every day now, I try, based on my reading and reflection, I post some photos on, on Instagram or snippets of thought related to list and list making and so forth. So if you, our listeners want to uh, go on my Instagram and have a look, and they can see it different reflection that this can bring about. But really, uh, so I'm interested in that idea that actually when we talk of Indian philosophy and especially of philosophy as a spiritual practice, we are actually looking at uh, how knowledge is formed to transform. And here a list becomes very important because lists come about as, uh, let's say, ritualized forms that are meant to be incorporated and are meant to be transformed and then ultimately we will see that these lists and these forms are let's say uh, mapping out the conventional world and some will suggest that they have to be uh, relinquished they have to be abandoned in order for the ultimate view somehow the ultimate perspective to dawn on oneself so that's also fascinating here we have let's say uh, an a pedagogy that teaches an endless amount of lists ultimately to suggest that we have to let go of all these lists. Uh, and I find that fascinating. So I'm um, uh, writing now and researching around that topic as a kind of continuity from doxography for these methods and these engagement with lists will ultimately become yeah, the content of doxographies. Well, that's certainly fascinating. And at, at this stage of, of any project, it should be up in the air. It should be expansive. It should be creative. It should, you shouldn't 
uh, so limit uh, or curtail your thought process right now. That certainly sounds like an idea worth pursuing, and it'd be interesting to see what comes of it. And should you publish a subsequent book, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and should I still be uh, doing this work, then we'll, we'll have to we'll have to uh, interview on that as well. I was most happy. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> So um, you mentioned your Instagram account. I am, uh, <laughs> embarrassingly, I'm a social media uh, uh, novice. <laughs> I literally joined Twitter last month. Um, I think it was to, to help promote something for Penguin. Um, so why don't you give folks your, um, your Instagram uh, handle? Oh, yes. You mean uh, verbally? Yeah. Uh, sure. Why not? I'll list it as well. But there are those, there are those who may welcome to the website. But for example, for those who get this this podcast through Apple, yeah, or something, yeah, no problem. Uh, be listed. So uh, I what I did is I kind of make an, an anagram with my name. So it's K X B, and then uh, with an underscore list with an S. So K X B underscore lists in plural. That's my uh, Instagram name. By the way, I'm quite new to all of this as well. It's actually my wife who uh, convinced me to uh, give it a shot and see how I like it. And then I I grew uh, very fond of it. (laughs) I'm using photos of my previous uh, travels and life in India. I stayed in India for quite a few years and I have quite a data bank of images that I use for these photos. Uh, And I try to make more uh, recent ones as well. Europe and so forth. Sounds great. So, so um, for those of you listening, once again, we have been speaking with Dr. Carl Stefan Boutillet uh, from Ghent University on his very recent publication. Um, and now I don't have the publication title handy. It's uh, Doxography, uh, sorry, Dialogue and Doxography in Indian Philosophy. Uh, for those of you um out there stay safe uh keep reading keep thinking keep listening uh take care until next time